From the cradle to the grave, you are measured against the yardstick of average, judged according to how closely you approximate it or how far you are able to exceed it. A modern conception of the average person is not a mathematical truth, but a human invention, created a century and a half ago by two European scientists, Quetelet and Gorton, to solve the social problems of their era. It's what Todd Rose speaks about in his bestseller, End of Average. Juliana Jackson has dug deep into the minds of data analytics leaders, people that work every day with measurements and metrics, to uncover what mental models they have built to help them understand the world. Join us while we focus on the stories of data analytics leaders and how they use mental models to challenge others to think differently by deviating from conventional approaches. We are back with a new episode of Standard Deviation, and I'm lucky uh, to have, again, a guest that is very fascinated with statistics and uh, standard deviations. Welcome, Neely Casey. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Juliana. So good to have you here today. I met you through a CXL course, a lot of CXL courses about machine learning and about statistics, but I want you to introduce yourself maybe to our audience that do not know you or didn't take the CXL course, so tell, you, tell us who you are. So I'm currently the director of data engineering, specializing in productionizing machine learning models at Slalom's build division in Sydney, Australia. That's a mouthful. <laughs> well, Slalom is a global consulting firm which helps with digital transformation and platform modernization. And prior to joining Slalom, I have had more than 12 years of experience expanding data science capabilities across academia, startups, government agency, and multinational corporations in Australia. I am really passionate about solving difficult problems and applying machine learning in creative ways. And I have been so very lucky to be able to drive the vision, encourage innovation, and deliver impactful outcomes to my various roles in the past. And outside of work, I actually enjoy listening to podcasts like standard deviation, <laughs> painting, sewing, and going for walks with my family and dogs. For people that want to check uh, you know, out more about what you do, they should definitely check your courses on, uh, in the technical marketing degree uh, on CXL. But you know, like right now you are here with me, but what happened before that? Like, How did you get in the measurement and analytics world? Okay, so after graduating from my bachelor degree in information and communication technology, I came across a PhD opportunity in the field of machine learning and information retrieval. At that time, I knew nothing about those fields, and it's back in 2004, so it's quite a while back. And I also didn't have a clue what career path I would have down the track, you know, after completing my PhD. And just to give you the context, the term data science was only coined in 2008. So back in 2004, I I had like I knew nothing and I had no idea what the future holds. The only thing I knew was I can learn and I want to learn. So I just dived head first and I was really glad. I'm conscious though that my situation is quite unique. So I want to make it clear that there are many ways to get into the measurement and uh, analytics world from you know math or stats background, 
the business domain or a more technical background? I, I, I didn't even know that uh, the term of data science was didn't even exist back then. I, <laughs> I, I just like, sometimes with these terms, like you just get into them and you think they're existing for you know, a long time. But what would be, because I'm curious, I think there might be more people curious as me, what are the main differences between a data analyst and a data scientist? Okay, that's a really good question. And a lot of people have asked me that in the past as well. So I'll tell you based on my personal observation. A data analyst examines structured data to identify trends and create visualizations to help the business make more data-driven decisions. And usually they utilize SQL data visualization tools. They could use R or Python as the scripting language to help them with that. And they also can use statistical analysis. Whereas a data scientist is faced with more unknowns and unstructured data. So they have to design and construct processes to help them model, create prototypes and create uh, to perform the really custom kind of analysis that a data analyst wouldn't be expected to do. And so you'll see that a data scientist would have a much wider range of tools in the in the tool belt. And so, for example, they would be expected to know maybe TensorFlow, Spark, various machine learning strategies, as well as you know your SQL, your Python, and statistical analysis that a data analyst would know as well. So the difference there really lies in the kind of problem they are solving. One is really a more structured and a more clearly defined problem, whereas the other is really less structured and requires the initiative to identify and define the problem. This is really interesting. The first thing that I can think about is that a lot of people are, what's the word, like they're kind of using the terms to define the same thing a lot of times. Would you say or would you think that if it's a company that doesn't have the data maturity, to understand the main differences between uh, these two roles, these two titles, they would ask the data analyst to do work with unstructured data. So it would be like, you know, like the bridge would be passed a bit towards that of data science. And yeah, like, what do you think about that? Do you think a data analyst is going to go into that world a bit? And maybe a data scientist is going to go in that that world a little bit? There is a lot of crossover, and I can see that. Crossover, that was the word. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that happen all the time. For example, as you can see, you know, there are a bit of overlap between the two roles. So it's quite easily for a data analyst to kind of upscale a little bit, expand their tool set, and just start to do what a data scientist would do. And likewise, a data scientist may not always have interesting problems to work with, 100% of the time. So sometimes they might need to do some more basic analysis type of work. And in fact, in my own career, when I do job searching, I've come across a lot of times where people um, advertise for a data scientist role, but you really can't just rely on the title. You have to look at the job description to know whether that's really the data scientist role you have in mind as well. Oh my God, yeah, I imagine there's so many messed up job descriptions where they confuse the two things. Yeah. Oh my God, I never thought about that. I think in a way, data science helps you, you know, 
it's like paving the way for a data analyst to work with better data because you put structure into unstructured data. Yes. And the data analyst would take that structured data and you know uh, get insights out of it that helps companies make better decisions. So it's like you guys are the the miners of the, <laughs> of the data in a way. This is really cool. I, I to be honest, I was confused by this tool. So this podcast is about the mental models, and I think I've been kicking with every guest that I had uh, so far about you know like what are the mental models or habits that they have built through their specialization methods and they are utilizing them in real life, not in the job, but like in their day-to-day life. In your case, because you work with data and with measurements, I want to know like what type of mental models or schemas, as I like to call them, have you built that help you deal with the real life? So I'm going to have a really data scientist kind of lens when I answer this. (laughs) So I have developed two habits that I apply at work all the time and I encourage my teams to also put into practice. The first one is to really understand your task or your request. Get people to talk about the problem or the pinpoint rather than the solution they want. So let me give you an example. Sometimes people might come to you and say, hi, I need a pie chart showing the percentage of revenue from the various revenue channels. Instead of that, what I would do is I would encourage the person to take a step back and tell me what they are facing as a problem instead. So let me phrase it as a problem here. It would become you know, I can't tell which revenue channel is more effective and I need that for my weekly reporting to the uh, stakeholders so we can prioritize our strategies. So that helps me to understand, okay, so this is something that will be needed on a weekly basis. So in that case, it's worthwhile to create a dashboard maybe for this person. And It's going to be something that is going to go into maybe a meeting or some sort of reporting document. So we want to make sure it's visualized in a way that even a non-technical person can understand quite clearly. And on top of that, we might even, you know, surprise and, you know, delight the user by putting it into a time series kind of thing so they can see how that change through time. So you can see when you frame the problem rather than offering a solution, you allow the technical people to offer a solution that you might not have thought of. So that's one thing I think is really important. The second thing is compare everything. That's my philosophy. And a lot of people will hear me, you know, like talk about this all the time. I think it's especially important when we are training a machine learning model or we are running an experiment to first set a baseline and then try multiple approaches. So you can be sure that what you are selecting at the end of the day is a good strategy or algorithm for the problem you're facing. So for example, you know, if the only tool we can use is a hammer, then all the problems become a hammer problem, right? So similarly, a lot of people will see, well, XGBoost works so well in all these competitions like Kaggle Challenge and all that. So they would just apply XGBoost to everything. But maybe 
it's not suitable for certain type of problems or because of your the nature of your data, maybe it's not the best performing algorithm. So what I encourage people to do is to always try three or four different algorithms and see what is the most performing one. I love the first one so much because when I took your course, I realized that I was doing it the other way around. So it was your course and um, what was the other instructor's name? Mike. Mike Robbins, I think yes. it was his name. And you guys came with a total different approach on uh, how to relate to the problem, how to plan a solution to the problem, how to um, build the steps. I never, like, I mean, I always had, like, a very structured way of handling work. But to be honest, I never realized that I was asking the wrong questions. So when you're asking the wrong questions, you will miss out on a lot of opportunities or on a lot of answers that might actually help you in a way you didn't expect, uh, expect it to help you. So I think it's an amazing way that, you know, you guys have helped me become better because now at work, I, and, I'm, and I'm learning SQL at the moment, and I realize how important it is to ask the right questions because if I don't, I'm going to get very wrong answers and they're not <laughs> going to help me. So I think, yeah, I think this is a great framework. Like think about the problem, relate to the problem, be able to formulate it and then plan the, plan the solution. And I actually took your, 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 your framework from the course and Mike's framework from the course. And this is how I built, um, so at CXL, I run the customer support team. Yeah. So I built this general troubleshooting document based exactly on your framework and oh, Mike's that's framework. So good. I put them <laughs> together. Yeah. And I'm actually going to send you this. This is great. So like, this is like the first thing that is written there. Is formulate the problem, and then I I made like a checklist of how you can formulate the problem, relate to it, try to reproduce it, understand it. Like you guys really changed the way I think about stuff, and like I'm a better worker because of that. So really, thank you for that. Oh, thank you for the uh, feedback. So good to hear. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome, and it's it's just it just makes you think differently, you know. So it's a great mental model. And as for your second one, I have a question. The reason I started this podcast is because I'm reading this book called The End of Average by this guy, this author that I like a lot, which is Todd Rose. He has another book that I recommended you, if you remember. Yeah. This one, The End of Average, is a very geeky book. And it's about how you can find, you know, your individuality in a sea of averages. So when it comes to comparing things, I want to ask you, like, how can you find, what's the word? How can you find the... Um, a deviation when you're comparing two averages because people who find themselves they're comparing some average with another average mm. find their own selves like i hope i make sense because i'm starting to geek <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so totally fine that's so cool i think in terms of comparison yeah you want to compare well i don't think you really want to compare averages that much i'll probably tell you my attitude towards averages i'm always a little bit cautious with using averages because sometimes the average is just not representative of a population for example average is different to the median median is actually a thing you know that instance does exist average sometimes doesn't 
So I'm always a bit cautious with using averages. And when I am talking about comparing everything, I'm really more talking about comparing the best performance you can achieve in the individual algorithms. And I want to just, you know, be just be clear that comparing averages can be a bit dangerous. <laughs> so always, you know, think a bit more carefully about what you're working with, what does what your data as a whole looks like. Are they outliers? Are they values that could kind of skew your average in a way? So you want to just be a bit cautious when you're comparing averages. And use that critical thinking a lot. That really, <laughs> really, 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 you know, is needed, I think, in general, in data and marketing and technical marketing. I think critical thinking and being able to, um, I guess, be more um conscious about the the evidence that you need to you know to, to you know to get to some uh, to some conclusions um talking about evidence i gotta admit like statistics for me it's a very hard i mean i don't think it's just for me i think more people need to admit that statistics are pretty hard i don't think like it's because the discipline is hard i just think the access in the world of statistics is a bit kind of um elitist if i may Mm. and um and i'm saying this from the perspective of the democratization of uh, statistics and i have i was invited in a webinar uh last year with with some really cool people from the conversion optimization world i am not by far no conversion optimization expert like at some point i was like what the fuck am i doing here (laughs) but i was there you know they invited me so i was like okay i'll just talk I, i only know personalization you know i don't know what you guys are talking about and they were talking basically and it just makes me think right now that when when we are so pushed towards experimentation in general right every team in every company it's very hard not to mess up because we are not trained to understand statistics and a lot of times we're just moving because we are really obsessed with the the causality like we yeah. really want that why mm. and because of that we tend to ignore all the evidence you know but not because we don't want to it's just because we don't have the right understanding of it if that makes sense so mm. i guess my question is like how do you think someone should navigate you know experimentation since you know the access to statistics is so undemocratized if that's the if that's the word yeah, uh, you make a really good point there. There is definitely a perception that statistics is really too hard. And I think it's it's unfortunate that it's not made more accessible. It's really because it's a field of so many specialized terms and concepts that cannot be easily explained. So that's why it's, it's so easy for people to perceive it as just too hard to you know, even get into. That's why in my course, in my CXL's Intermediate Statistics course, I made an effort to use more relatable examples and shorter definitions to make everything more digestible. And my hope was it would reduce the number of people just putting statistics in the too hard basket. And I, I really hope that more people do the same because it's it's a pity that, you know, we are experimenting a lot. You know, we are doing 
A-B testing just all the time, right? And it's really a pity that it's not done properly because people don't understand how to kind of treat the result properly and when there is statistical relevance and when there isn't. And so in my role, I, I do this a lot, I advise people against rushing experimentation and wait until they get statistical significance because, you know, you are really trading few days or weeks of testing to having a whole team implementing something which doesn't work in the long long run. Or worse still, it might work for a short time, but then it won't work down the track. And you can't be confident that that's the cause of the performance decline. So maybe I can give you an, an example. A very common A-B testing thing is on a website, adding a new feature. So say a website is testing a new banner against its control, which doesn't have any banner. And it's quite likely that the variation with the banner receives a lot of interest and engagement initially because of the novelty factor. It's new. But you will often see the variation decline in performance after a while. So imagine if you just stop the experiment prematurely before reaching statistical significance, then you will end up using the version with the banner, thinking that is performant, but in actual fact, it isn't. And say a month after the test ended, suddenly nothing is performing as it used to. We cannot know for sure whether it's the banner or some other factor contributing to the poor performance. So that is the, I guess, the importance of considering statistical analysis in the accurate way in what you do, especially when it comes to experimentation. It's true. And I think a lot of people are thinking that they are compromising speed when they're waiting for that. And it has everything to do with the maturity of the of the team and of the company because that's right we're still dealing with companies that have a very you know uh, high experimentation maturity but there are people that don't and uh, or companies that don't and then the team there's not like a culture of experimentation that's built within the team and they're not trained into understanding uh, you know the, the, the you know the right steps into uh, solving this and an example I can give you is I remember, I, I, I just watched this, you know, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. So I remember a video on LinkedIn from a company that sells a data dashboarding tool, talking to someone and saying, you know what, forget about statistical relevance. Like, just, just look at, do this and just wait to see if something that you want happens. And when you see that something that you want happens, then just proceed with it. I'm like, oh, no. wow, like, this is what we're teaching. This is, yeah, like, don't do that. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And people were, like, cheering that up. And sometimes I'm a bit snarky on LinkedIn. I, I let the snark come out. And I'm like, sure, if you want to defy all the laws of statistics and, you know, statistical relevance and A-B testing, yeah, let people, you know, deal with this. And I think in commerce, specifically, there should be more education when it comes to statistical uh, relevance. So I want to, I'm going to ask you something. Uh, I'm I'm looking, I have a quote here written somewhere. 
about the average man. And I was, I asked this, I asked this question to Tim Wilson. He's a, also a CXL instructor. He's teaching about data visualization and storytelling, but actually he's a statistics guy that does R. <laughs> that's another, that's another story. And I had a quote for him. Oh, there you go. So I'm going to I'm going to repurpose this question and for whoever is watching this on YouTube yes I'm reading and for whoever is listening this on a podcast channel I am not reading. <laughs> so in a very famous essay that was written in the 1835 in the you know 18th century Adolf Ketelet which is the guy that created the average man right so he introduced the notion of the homme moyen the average man by combining the social and uh, physical characteristics of population. So this is where the average man concept comes from, you know, uh, combining social and physical uh, characteristics of uh, population. So he said that such patterns could be explained by the general causes for which society exists and maintains uh, itself. And he believed that the science of man should investigate the social body and other particular things distinguishing the individuals composing it. And he believed that statistical laws explain the social phenomena and as civilization, you know, being developed. And the average man would be, I guess, more closely approximated by focusing on this thing. And basically, his work has been essential to the society we're living today. He's just one of the culprits, I guess. So I want to ask you, what do you think about the concept of uh, average, the average man? Very right. easy question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. To be honest, I I didn't. I've not read the the work, so I had to Google. That's great. But <laughs> but mixed feelings when I was you know getting finding out more information about this, and there are three reasons to it. First of all, I I'm not sure whether I've already mentioned this in passing before, but I'm always quite cautious. I think I did. <laughs> I'm always cautious yeah. when we're using averages or mean. They are the same thing. Um, cautious about using average because it can be easily skewed by outliers or you know long tails or any of those. But in his case, he only considered those measures in a normal distribution. So in which case the average is equivalent to the median. So my concern is totally irrelevant. So uh, well played there, <laughs> Adolfi. My second area that I want to kind of discuss is, is the probability of the average man really existing. So if you think about it, it's, it's really made up of a number of features, right? So you might say, okay, the average man in terms of height is, I don't know, 180 centimeters change the, the unit to whatever you like and maybe the average weight is 70 kilograms i'm just pulling numbers out of my head these are not true <laughs> so what what i'm trying to say is the more features you add the less likely someone will fit into all of those so it really depends on the feature and the correlation between the features and if you add too many features or if you add features that do not necessarily correlate strongly with each other, you end up having the average man, which does not exist. <laughs> so I guess we just have to be quite careful about having this concept of 
average or common or, or you know anything like that and defining that as as the ideal you know the last area i want to kind of talk about is the social implications of labeling something that is really can be like a social phenomenon all right so this is something i i think i mentioned in my ml course in cxl as well it's really similar to using machine learning using a machine learning model to predict some social phenomenon as soon as you announce the finding things will change people will behave differently so an example would be as soon as you say the peak hour train ride is at seven or let's make it uh, smaller 8 a.m to 9 a.m and at that time that is the just the most crowded time to be traveling as soon as people see that they will try to avoid the crowded time, right? So you will just really skew the way people behave without intending to. So that is something I think the average man may be doing as well. By labeling something as the average, as the ideal, you are really pushing the general population towards converging to that ideal. So I think it's it's really something we need to think about, you know, when you are trying to label something or when you're trying to predict a social phenomenon, you should always be mindful that it may just change how people behave when you as soon as you make that statement. Evolution affects behavior, you know, that all kinds of Yeah. Yeah, but I I, I... Now I have a following question based yep. on what you said. So, me getting my geeky eyes. So after uh, Ketele did this work with the average man, there was this other guy called Francis Galton, which said exactly what you said, that if we're thinking just about physical appearance and about, you know, like the body, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. We have to also take in consideration how smart people are or how beautiful they are or whatever so he came up with his own concept of the average man and he's the guy that is to blame for the word eminent and the word mediocre so he came up with his own work he came up yeah with his own work so people were the people that were averages were called actually mediocre like in Ketelet it was good to be an average yeah. But when Galton came in, if you were an average, you were considered mediocre. So you were just, you know, whatever you were blending. Yeah. The people that were exceeding the mediocre were called eminent. And the people that were, God forbid, under mediocre, they were called, you know, like uh, outliers. So from that, then another guy, after some years, I forgot his name, called Taylor, came up with this concept of Taylorism, which basically put the basis of how people work in factories. He created the whole factory work like when the bell rings you stop for a break then you go back to work and then that concept got put into schools <laughs> so basically <laughs> from when we're born to the moment when we're die, we're dying when we're in our grave all our life is standardized <laughs> that's, that's, that's so amazing that's, this uh, body of work is, is fascinating yeah, like it's it's insane how much these things affect our society and like it's still happening. 
and God forbid you're not you're falling out of the the standardization covenant because you're considered the outlier or you know or someone that's mediocre. Oh my God! I, I want to ask you something, which I I kind of ask uh, I kind of ask mostly the same questions in different ways for my guests because I'm planning at the end of this podcast to write a very big article about uh, this topic of averages. So this is another question that I ask a lot, which amuses me and is very cool to hear opinions on it. So you know how we're taking personality tests online a lot? Yeah. The Myers, I don't know, the Gallup test to find yeah. out what our strengths are, the strength fighter. And I took all of this, you know, personality test. I took even the BuzzFeed test to find out, you know, what type of food I am, <laughs> what type of color I am when I'm bored. But I guess what I want to ask is that the behavior when we're taking this test is to find out more things about ourselves. Psychologically speaking about it, we want to, I guess, be understood better by the world. And for mm-hmm. that, we just need these labels to label ourselves so we can communicate to the world, like, hey, this is who we are. So we can find out if we're either an introvert, an analytical thinker, or if we're not a learner, or whatever. However, however, um, <laughs> the results that we would have in such a test are compared to an average. They're not compared to someone that comes from the same background as us, that have the same interests, the same geography. It's all the results that we have are just, you know, compared to an average of the whole world with people from all sorts of, you know, backgrounds. So I guess my question, because and I'm asking this from, a, I guess, a mathematical perspective, because you definitely know math better than me, a miracle how I finished computer science. <laughs> My math skills are so bad. I just want to ask you, like, do, do you really think or could you speculate if this result would be true and if they're true, why? Okay. My response may surprise you. <laughs> I actually I think these personality tests and even to the extreme of horoscopes, they are actually... Op- way of user segmentation that we do quite often in data science and marketing today because if you think about it we are using data points about individuals to separate them into groups so that we can make inferences about them before we have complete information about them so with sufficiently large sample and realistic expectation about you know their characteristics and accuracy, it's actually quite brilliant how those models were developed. And to me, I I would love it if I could develop a model that can stand the test of time, like the Meyer Briggs and you know and you know horoscope, which has been there forever. Obviously, yeah. not forever, but <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, that is something that is taking user segmentation to the extreme, right? Instead of segmenting users into your various types that we have defined in the modern days, they are creating their own buckets to put people in. And what I'm always curious to, to find out is, how much those models have drifted over time, if any. And are they still applicable in the same way now as they were when they were developed? But I think the concept is it's just so good because we use that all the time, right? And it's got really great applications for us. 
So for example, we use user segmentation to help us personalize you know, messages better, to help have recommendations for products or articles for different users. And, and I think that's basically what all these personality tests are doing as well. They use few what they think is the um, key questions to help separate people into different buckets. Then based on the majority of the people in the bucket, this is pretty much, you know, taking statistics to, to the extreme here as well. You know, just looking at the major trend, the major features of all the people in that bucket and try to infer certain characteristics of just everybody there. So a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people are surprised that I think of something as old as horoscope so highly, but that's because it's basically a very old way of doing what we are doing today. And I think it's so brilliant, whoever thought of it first, you know, that is just amazing. Yeah, I love it. I never thought about it like this, but you're right. And again, like at the end of the day, it's still segmentation. And it reminds me of something that I was talking to um, one of the podcast guests, uh, Chivan, and she was saying that as much as you want, when you're segmenting, you cannot go that granular. Like you have to go with a bigger sample size of people. Like when you want to do tests and experimentation and personalization, you cannot just work with one person. Like That's right. That one person is thrown to the side. And you're just focusing on segments because those segments are workable versus just the outliers. Yeah. Really interesting. <laughs> I like this. I never thought about it like this. And uh, this is really cool. I guess also from a non-statistical perspective, I think as, you know, from a society perspective, it's just, it's just help us, helps us, you know, present ourselves to the world and understand ourselves better, right? I yeah, that's 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 what it is. I was talking also to to a friend of mine, Matt, and I took this. I'm taking this SQL courses. I had to pause them for a bit. SQL courses, I call them SQL, but it's the same thing. And I had this assessment after I finished the introductory part, and I scored 64, which they were telling me in data camp that is 22 percent better than the average. Okay. So like I had the intermediate skills, and I remember, oh my god, I was like. Man, oh my god, you know, like I'm great. But then I stopped and talked thought about it. I'm like, this can be people that are just doing SQL for two days, for two weeks, or for a year. Like this is not correct. Like, why am I so happy about it? You know, but it makes you feel proud of yourself. Yeah. So I just think, you know, from a psychology perspective, it just makes you feel like you belong or it makes you feel like you made progress or you're better. Because at the first assessment I was at twenty-eight. Then I was at 54, and then I was at 64, and I was like, man, like, I'm killing this. <laughs> I'm so good. That's so good. And, um, yeah, I was, but then, you know, when I talked to him, like, he really bursted my whole bubble. Said, yeah, but this could be anyone that took this test. Like, why are you so happy? And I'm like, wow, you're right. And I just got to subqueries right now, so probably my score is going to drop. The subqueries are horrible. <laughs> I, I prefer joints than subqueries. I don't know why. Maybe it's like a tasting, but I really prefer joints. Oh, that's cool. But the subqueries are good because you can copy them and use them in different yeah. instances. Yeah, usually people find joints harder to grasp. 
<laughs> that's weird because I, I think they're easier. That's well, so that's, crazy. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, I just I just think it's cleaner with the join. Like you can see clearly, you know, it's a join yeah. where it started, where did they connected, what did you change, what are you looking for. So queries are missing, in my opinion, and you always have to comment them off because you're gonna forget <laughs> why did you you know why did you do this. But with joins, there's not too many question marks. But anyway. Let's not talk about SQL. <laughs> I don't, don't want to, you know, like go into that. I just want to talk more about you. So I saw your LinkedIn post. Um, it was that, um, you know, that uh, post uh, with the, the little girl with me, which uh, it went on social media for a while. And you posted it like seven months ago. And like, I really love how candid and beautiful your message is. And, Thank uh, you. Was in a, yeah, you said that you made math and art classes work together. So I want to hear more about that. Like, how how did you combine math with art? I am a middle child, so I don't get too much pressure into doing anything in particular. <laughs> so I've always had the freedom to really do whatever I feel like. And art was one thing I totally, totally loved. At one point in time, I even wanted to be a fashion designer. So that, that's the level of love I had. Anyway, so I went to an all-girls public high school in South Africa as part of my high, my high school um, education. And I had to choose subjects at that time. And besides the compulsory subjects, there were really just three streams that you could choose from. And unfortunately, the STEM subjects were... N- you know, they included the advanced math, the chemistry, the physics, but they didn't include art. Art was in a totally different stream with like, I can't remember exactly, but probably typing, home economics, or those kind of things. And I did not want to give any of them up. And uh, <laughs> so I asked around, I went to find out how the streams were created and how you know, what I needed to do to really have the ability to do art as well as the STEM subjects together. And I was told that as long as there are enough students willing to do them, then that's fine. They can create a new one. So then I was on a mission to find enough students in my year wanting to do STEM subjects as well as visual arts. Now, this was not easy for me. I am totally introverted and I'm just your really agreeable student back in high school you know I would not challenge anything really so after a lot of you know discussion to people and really observing what kind of people would really want to do STEM as well as art I was able to get the numbers I needed so that year we had that extra stream and it was really the first time I fought for something I wanted so it was such a big deal for me And it really made me kind of step out of my shell and just realize, wow, I didn't think I could do this, but I did. I think it's like, it's great because you learned this lesson at an early age and definitely because you felt so good at the end of it, you probably, you know, took this with you and used it to fight in the future for what you wanted. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you know, from a historical perspective, math is the base of everything, even art. You know, if you think about Socrates and or Plato or whatever, it's like all the old philosophers or physicians or 
uh, placing math at the at the center of everything. I wish I had the courage in you to do the same. I also did uh, maths in high school, computer science, and it was just terrifying. There were like 10 hours of math per week. It was terrifying. Back in my day, I yeah. didn't even have a choice to do computing. It wasn't even a choice. So. No, like my high school was very technical. It was actually oh, a technical industrial high school. Oh, nice. And the, the, yeah, and I think I wouldn't have had the courage as you did to just fight for, you know, what I wanted. I just, you know, went with it. I was just happy to, you know, to be in the computer. Like you would, if you were in computer science, Back in the days, you were one of the cool kids. Oh, Everything okay. was cool. <laughs> you were cool. I'll tell <laughs> you. Cool, but... I'll tell you the level of computer science I did back in high school. We would have computer labs with really old computer, and the only thing we did in that class was making a little turtle move forward a few steps, turn left or right ninety degrees. That was the level of computer science we did. <laughs> Oh my god. It was technically similar. I think what I did, I actually have an analyst program or diploma, if you can believe it, from high school that I didn't use it for anything in my life. But like what we did was we were taught database uh, oh, wow. structures. and uh, But back then, I learned the thing Cobol and Pascal and Foxboro. Who the hell is using that now? Like, it has nothing to do with SQL. It has nothing to do, it's most, like, with nothing. So when I finished that, I built the database of video games. I was so proud of it. Yeah, that my, you should. That was my license for it. It's amazing. I wouldn't know how to write a, a line in FoxPro right now. It was in Visual FoxPro. That was my, because I was more advanced. I said, I'm not going to use Pascal. I'm going to use Visual FoxPro. <laughs> But it was a lot of math involved and logical thinking, and it didn't really catch up with me until later in the, you know, in, in my life. But yeah, again, like I wouldn't have had the courage you did to uh, just go for, you know, go for it. And I think it's beautiful that you did. I kind of want to ask you, like, what do you think about um, the education systems that we have right now in the world? Okay, I'm going to disappoint you a little bit here just because I don't have much visibility to the traditional education system anymore after I stopped lecturing. So I will refrain from commenting on it. But I would like to share my observation on the various online courses available nowadays because I think it's really exciting to see so many options of online courses we're just making education resources more accessible to everyone, regardless of their gender, age, location, or how extroverted they are, really. And, and, and what you're saying here about grading and averages still would apply. But I think most of the time I get questions like, which course should someone wanting to be a data scientist take? because there are just so many options out there and it's really difficult to differentiate all the online offerings. And for that, I would suggest, I would suggest someone who's just starting, just starting out to pick up SQL, basic stats, and even Python from anywhere because it's, it's more important to get started than fussing over where they are learning from because the quality at that level doesn't deviate too much. So regardless of where you're learning from at, le 
at that level, you will not go wrong, really. But once you have the basics, then you have to be more selective and focus on courses that have a more practical aspect or are taught by people with the relevant experiences in the industry. So I think those people, if you think about it, okay, when you take on a course, you will get graded, right? But you have to also think who is grading your work. Now, if this person doesn't have the industry experience needed, will the questions be relevant? Will the material you are being taught relevant? And will their perception of what is good reflect what is really you know, out there in the industry or reflect what is the state of the art right now? So those are questions we need to think about. And once you have the right material and the right delivery, then you need to, yes, consider the the grading and the averages. And that's a totally different story all, all on its own because we all know about, you know, scaling and, and some sort of some sort of relative adjustment to the marks you actually get. So your marks will never really be the actual marks you get in the test. There will always be some sort of adjustment or or just some changes applied to it. Really. So you you are totally right. So what you'll often see is if everybody is doing poorly, oftentimes it will just get scaled up and then, you know, normalized and, and that's, that's it. But we really need to ask more questions about it. Like, why is everyone doing poorly? <laughs> you know, that is the more important question. And also, are the questions being asked or being taught to the student relevant to what's happening in our current day? That's also another important question to ask. Besides, you know, the possibility of learning on your own right now because the online courses market is very good and you can actually pick up and learn no matter where you're coming from and what you're doing. And, you know, the self-paced course are the best because you don't have to deal with nobody. And yeah, even if I'm an, extra, I'm an extrovert on the outside, on the inside, I'm a huge introvert myself and I don't like to deal with nobody. I <laughs> stuff on my own and I don't want people to look at me while I'm doing them so I get it but talking about you know like general school and I speak from it as a parent perspective I just feel like we're not preparing children for the future anymore I feel we're like just teaching them the same curriculum for 50, from 15 years or 100 years ago and we're not preparing them for a future we're just preparing them for a past I probably would address this from an educator's perspective here. So I'm sure every educator will want to educate the students for the future, but the actual fact is nobody can accurately predict the future. So what we can only what we can do is just to teach the foundational concepts and what is currently widely used so that we enable the students to grasp whatever new technology comes their way. It's very much like training a machine learning model. We are using historical patterns and features to train a model and with really with the aim to generalize to whatever we have not seen before. So in a, set, in a similar way, we are equipping the students to be able to extend what they learned to new tech of the future. I mean, 
most of the time, if a student is learning a course right now, by the time they finish the course, something new would have come up. You can never be ahead and prepare them, yeah, for for what's to come because you simply don't know what will come in the future. So you can only prepare them and give them the skills to extend their knowledge to you know be able to have the confidence and have that ability to learn whatever new comes along yeah that makes sense uh, foundational learning is very important because it sets the tone for what you can add up on, on top of that and a funny example that i can give you on this is uh, my son all the information that was once gated and it was only in the power this is oh this is a deep thought let me hold this thought so i think all the information that and knowledge was gated in the teacher's uh brain and then it was externalized to students now all that information is on the internet and it's free and it's democratized and anyone can learn anything yeah like he wants to learn javascript so i'm about to buy him a computer and i'm gonna you know push him to learn javascript because he thinks he's gonna build his own video games which is fine i'm gonna encourage him. javascript is a horrible it's horrible it's hard but I'm gonna say, good, you know, it's fine. So, like, this is the type of stuff that kids, like a kid like him that's 11, that if he wants to learn about something, he just can go and learn it, and it doesn't need to fill his long term memory with stuff that can be always, you know, picked up. And I think that's what schools need to realize in general, like, they are really competing with the internet yes. and with the information that's there, and it's like they're not the gatekeeper of the information, and I think they should use. Things like they should teach stuff like again critical thinking, which is very important. Yeah, and uh, I don't know like about how to deal with money, like stuff like this that are practical. I would love to see that happening in the future. I guess my last question for you is: so I, <laughs> it's going to be a selfish question. So do you think someone that's thirty-two that worked previously in product and marketing? And now just discover that the age of 31, because I'm going to be 32 soon, that she likes SQL a lot and data a lot and, you know, problem solving. Do you think I have any chance in the future to go and do data science? <laughs> just hit of me course. as it is. <laughs> of course, anybody can do it. Well, I don't know how old you think I am, but <laughs> I'm older than you think. We're probably the same age, right? I'm like 10 years older than you, but... <laughs> But I pushing myself to continuously learn, and and I've seen so many people around me. I mean, they are in their forties or fifties, and they are still learning. And I've seen. I think I, I read the news about entrepreneurs who really are only starting out after they've had a really long and successful career, and they are the ones who really succeed. So I think. It's never too late to try something new and it's never too late to learn because I think most people are learning every day, right? It's just you prioritize what to learn. You decide how you want to use your time. So I think it's definitely not too late for anybody, regardless of the age. Never too early, never too late to start learning if that's the path they want to go into. If that interests them, then just go for it. I mean, there's always so much to learn. There's so much out there. And yeah. just to to make it really clear, sometimes I go on LinkedIn 
I get overwhelmed by all the information out there, all the messages of everyone doing so well, everyone sharing this information. And I'm just like, oh, I, I have this, you know, formal fear of missing out. I don't know that. I've never read that. I've never tried that in an actual application. And I'm just sometimes questioning myself and doubting my ability as well. Just thinking, am I a good data scientist if I don't know all the things out there? And the fact is, no matter which field, which industry you're in, there is just so much to learn. So don't don't get overwhelmed. Just be selective and fo- you know, pick your focus and just go for it. I relate to that so much because it's so competitive in the field and you see people doing all this stuff and wins and you're like, damn, I'm really not, what if I'm doing this wrong? Like, it's a pressure. It's super high pressure all the time. But the cool part is, and this is something Craig Sullivan told me when I talked to him a while back, exactly when I had the same problem that you mentioned, he said something that you should imagine your knowledge as a light, like imagine you're sitting at the, on, on the street and it's very dark and your, your uh, knowledge is the light. And you see only where the light is, you don't see the darkness, but the more you know, you will see more into the darkness. But the reality is that the more you know, the more you don't know. It's never going to be a fair balance between what you know and what you don't know. So the more you know, the more you don't know. And I think that's that's something we need to make peace with. And we just cannot be everything to everybody. And yeah, I think it's a great advice to be be selective with uh, with stuff. It's kind of hard. Also because you feel like this competition. But yeah, like at the at the end of the day, you just have to do what's best for you. Mm, And everybody only has 24 hours. So <laughs> you can't jam more. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming today. Uh, where can people find you or follow you? Anyone can add me as a connection on LinkedIn. And I think that is probably the best way to reach me at this moment. I'm going to be more active online in those online and open communities. But at this moment, LinkedIn is the best. For sure, and also people should definitely check your uh, CSO courses about intermediate statistics, machine learning. They're very, very good. Thank you. Very, very good. And I'll see you guys uh, next time.